Thanks for listening to the podcast from River's Edge Church in Spokane, Washington. For more information or to gather with us on Sundays, please visit our website at respokane.org. We hope this message is impactful for you and others as we pursue the way of Jesus together. Today, we step into a new series on uh, practicing the way of Jesus, which is all about spiritual practices or spiritual disciplines that we can engage in that help form us into the image of Christ. And we'll be doing all of that, this series, through the lens of the Gospel of Luke. So if you have a Bible, go ahead and turn with me in your Bibles to Luke chapter 5 verse 27, and we'll pick up there in a few minutes. Uh, As you're turning there, a few quick things that I want to mention. Uh, The first is that I was in the midst of planning this series a couple months ago when one of my former pastors, a guy by the name of John Mark Comer, uh, released a book covering many of the subjects that we are going to be covering uh, in this series. And the book is phenomenal. It's called The Ruthless Elimination of Hurry, uh, and I would highly recommend it. Not only has it quickly become one of my favorite books ever, uh, but it also lines up beautifully with where we were already headed in this series. So as a result, uh, a ton of the material from this book is going to end up in the series that we're embarking on today, and rather than just constantly quoting the book over and over again, What I'm going to do is just encourage each and every one of you to read this book if you can. It will be well worth your time. This book has been um, life-changing for me, as I hope our series will be for you. Second, this is a series uh, about spiritual disciplines or spiritual practices, uh, but it actually sits central to much larger conversations on discipleship and even what it means to be human. In the beginning, God creates human beings in his image to reflect, embody him to the world. And when we fail at this, God eventually steps into humanity in the person of Jesus. And because Jesus is both God and human, he does two things for us. The first is that Jesus perfectly reveals who God is, what God is like. The scriptures say he is the exact representation of God's being. But in the process, Jesus becomes the perfect human as well the perfect image bearer, the end goal of humanity itself. And so from that point forward, from this moment where God steps into humanity, Jesus is going to call people to come and follow him, to become his disciples and become more like him. But in doing so, 
what he's actually doing is taking uh, broken image bearers and transforming them, restoring them back into perfect image bearers of God. Uh, He is making them fully and perfectly human once more. But this is what it sounds like on the street level in, first, in the first century world. Listen to this. This is Luke 5, verse 27. It says, After this, uh, doing miracles, calling other disciples to follow him, etc., Jesus went out and saw a tax collector by the name of Levi sitting at his tax booth. Follow me, Jesus said to him. And Levi got up, left everything, and followed him. Early in his ministry, Jesus starts calling disciples, and he calls them with a simple phrase, follow me. But this simple phrase actually meant something in the first century. The first century Jews had a clear picture of what it meant to be a rabbi and to have disciples. So to agree to be a disciple under a rabbi was a commitment to three things. First, you were committing to be with your rabbi. Second, you were committing to become like your rabbi over time. And third, you were ultimately committing to carry on his work in the world. So when Jesus says, come follow me, they already have a framework for what he's inviting them into. They drop their nets, they leave everything, and they go to be with Jesus for years on end. And over that time, they know that their aim, that their goal is to learn and grow and become more like Jesus through their time with him. And eventually, uh, Jesus uh, is killed, resurrected, and he ascends, and, and they receive the Holy Spirit. But what's the Holy Spirit empowering them to do? Well, it's empowering them to go out and to continue his work in the world. So before he ascends, he says, go and make what? Disciples. You've been doing it. You know what a disciple is. Now go and make disciples of all nations. So they go out into the world saying, come follow Jesus. Be his disciple. And this is actually what we were invited into. The invitation was never simply to believe in Jesus and then go back to life as usual. It was always to become a disciple of Jesus. And so this actually becomes the point of our lives and the focus of this series. Be with Jesus. Become like Jesus. And do what Jesus would do if he were you. This is discipleship. This is your life. But it's also the human vocation to increasingly bear the divine image, to become more and more like Jesus, the one true human. This is why you're alive. 
And, and the spiritual practices that we'll be unpacking in this series are all aimed at that one goal. Be with Jesus. Become like Jesus. Learn to carry on his work, to do what Jesus would do if he were you. The point of all spiritual practices will never be the spiritual practices. They are always a means to an end. And and so I wanted us to see, get a picture of that end goal before we dive into our first practice this morning. So with all of that in mind, please turn with me two pages to the left in your Bible as we tackle our first spiritual practice this morning uh, to Luke chapter 3 verse 21. Uh, For context, as you're turning there, in Luke 3, uh, we... By the way, if you don't have a a Bible or you don't own one, there's actually a stack of Bibles in the back, which you can borrow for the gathering, or if you don't have one, you can take that home, like make it your own. Those are are free. We never say that, but they are. Um, Luke chapter 3, thousands of people are coming to a man named John the Baptist uh, to be baptized in the Jordan River as they prepare to receive the Messiah. And then we read these verses. Verse 21, when all the people were being baptized, Jesus was baptized too. And as he was praying, heaven opened and the Holy Spirit descended on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, you are my son whom I love. With you I am well pleased. From obscurity, uh, Jesus bursts onto the scene right here in this moment with the anointing and the affirmation of the Father. And from this moment forward, when he becomes a public figure, as the gospel stories begin, it becomes increasingly clear that Jesus has a unique and beautiful relationship with the Father. He's filled with the Holy Spirit, and there's this incredible intimacy between them. Uh, This is uh, the secret and the center to Jesus' ministry. Uh, In fact, in the Gospel of John, Jesus says, Hey, I only do what I see the Father doing. And I only say what I hear, what I sense the Father is saying. Uh, From this baptism forward, we get a picture uh, of Jesus abiding in, in the Father. Uh, his, his heart, his attention, his awareness was flooded with the presence of God. To the point where he said, Hey, I'm going to walk perfectly in step with the Spirit. I will only do what I sense the Father doing, I will only say what I sense the Father is saying. In this, he he changed the world. But the first question that, that arises for us as disciples of Jesus is, is this possible for us? Here we are thousands of years later as disciples of Jesus. Our call is to be with Jesus, to become like Jesus. Is this uh, intimacy this connection, this awareness of God actually attainable 
for regular people like us? Is this just a, a God-man, Jesus thing? Or, or is this for all of us? Well, loads of people throughout church history have assumed that it is possible and they have attempted to cultivate this same intimacy with God. And this art, this practice, has come to be known as practicing His presence or practicing the presence of God. And there's a sense in which practicing the presence of God is the end goal of all spiritual practices. Uh, There's a sense in which everything else that we'll talk about in the series is just a means to that end. But there's also another sense in which practicing his presence uh, functions as a standalone uh, practice uh, or an independent art that we can grow in and engage in as disciples. Jesus says, I am the vine, and you are the branches. If you remain, or some translations say, abide in me, and I in you, you will bear much fruit. And this word abide is where we get the word abode. It means that as followers of Jesus, we are to make our home in Jesus. It means that we cultivate an intimacy, a connection with Him, that we commune with Him as much as possible, moment by moment, day in and day out. Our home, our center, is actually in Christ. And as the end goal of all spiritual practices, There are many ways of going about this, uh, of getting after it. But as a standalone spiritual practice, you can practice the presence of God whenever you want, wherever you want, simply by turning your attention and awareness toward Him. God is with you. Right here right now, in this room. Bless you. And as a result, you can practice his presence right now while you're listening to me talk. Practicing his presence means you you go about your day, you engage in whatever it is that you're engaging in, but underneath the surface... You're turning your heart, your awareness, your affection toward the God who is always with you. The one who will never leave you, who will never forsake you. Several people have become internationally known Uh, for practicing the presence of God in this way, moment by moment. And the two best examples uh, that I'm aware of are a man named Brother Lawrence, who lived in 17th century France, uh, and a man named Frank Laubach, uh, who was actually an American missionary in the 1930s. And both of these men, uh, separated by hundreds of years, uh, devoted their lives to this experiment of practicing the presence of God. 
Uh, much of their experience is captured in this little book called Practicing His Presence, uh, which just happens to be my favorite book of all time outside of Scripture. It is so, so good. Um, and we'll be giving you lots of uh, suggested readings throughout the series, but today are like two of my favorite books. Um, and in the opening pages, Frank Laubach describes practicing the presence of God in this way. He says, uh, perhaps a man who has been an ordained minister since 1914 ought to be ashamed to confess that he never before felt the joy of complete hourly, minute by minute. Now what shall I call it? More than surrender, I had that before. More than listening to God, I tried that before. I cannot find the word that will mean to you or me what I am now experiencing. It is a will act. I compel my mind to open straight out toward God. I wait and listen with determined sensitiveness. I fix my attention there, and sometimes it requires a long time early in the morning. I determine not to get out of bed until that mind set upon the Lord is settled. After a while, perhaps, it will become a habit, and the sense of effort will grow less. But why do I constantly harp on this inner experience? Because I feel convinced that for me and for you who read, there lie ahead undiscovered continents of spiritual living compared to which we are infants in arms. And the book goes on from there. These two people and many other men and women throughout history uh, took time each day to cultivate an awareness of God's presence, to, to turn their hearts, their attention toward him until they sensed his presence. And, and then they would go about their day constantly realigning themselves, carrying, cultivating that intimacy and that sense of presence. In the beginning, uh, many of them started by just doing that a few times a day, just pausing a few times throughout the day to just take a deep breath and turn the, their heart, their mind, their attention toward God, right in the midst of what they're doing. And, and then after they got in the habit of that, they started doing it once an hour. And, and then when they got in the habit of that, they started doing it every 15 minutes. And, and then some of them went beyond that and said, why not once a minute? Why not one breath a minute where I continue to do what I'm doing, but, but I turn my heart, my attention toward the God who is with me. And then continue my work in his presence. You will object to this intense introspection, Frank says. Do not try it unless you feel dissatisfied with your own relationship with the Lord. And the sad reality is that many of us are dissatisfied with our own relationship, but we aren't sure how to express that, and we're not quite sure what to do about it. Frank goes on. He says, two years ago, 
A profound dissatisfaction led me to begin trying to line up my actions with the will of God about every 15 minutes or every half hour. Other people to whom I confessed this intention said it was impossible. I judge from what I have heard that few people are really trying even that. But this year I have started out to live all my waking moments in conscious listening to the inner voice, asking without ceasing, Father, what do you desire said? What, Father, do you desire this minute? It is clear that this is exactly what Jesus was doing all day, every day. The goal of your discipleship, first off, is to be with Jesus. And you are. Right here, right now. We just don't recognize it. Our, our attention, our awareness is often on other things. But to be a disciple is to commit your life to being with Jesus, to growing in awareness of his presence, to grow in intimacy with him. And second, we are to become like Jesus, who was himself in constant communion with the Father, who lived his life in glorious freedom that comes from walking in the will of God who only did what he sensed the Father doing, who only said what he sensed the Father saying. And then Jesus turns around to you and me, and he says, abide. Abide in me. Just as I abide in the Father, so too you are to abide in me. Be in constant communion, intimacy, relationship, awareness with me. Make your home in me. Cultivate this ongoing awareness and connection with me. And just like a branch that is constantly connected to the vine, life will flow from me to you. You will be in me, and I will be in you. This is how you are to live. And the sad reality is that most of us have missed this completely. Uh, our attention, our focus, our awareness isn't on God, if we're being honest. It's on a myriad of other things. And as a result, for the most part, we don't abide. Our home is elsewhere. God is someone that we encounter on rare occasion but not someone we have made our home within. And one of the reasons that this is so hard for us is that we live in the digital age where other things are screaming for our attention and our awareness. I was born in 1986. I know... I'm getting old. I'm in my 30s now. But I can think back on a number of remarkable milestones in my lifetime. I vividly remember in 1995 when our family got our first home computer. 
Uh, I remember a few short years later when home internet uh, became a thing, and it was called dial-up, uh, for those of you who were too young in that time period. Uh, and, and you could connect to the internet and like get on AOL Instant Messenger or make yourself a MySpace page or whatever, uh, but it took like a full five minutes just to connect to the internet. And you could be halfway through making your MySpace page when your sister picked up the landline to talk to her friends and you were immediately disconnected from the internet all over again. That never happened to me, of course. Um, but I remember uh, the day when uh, cell phones started becoming a thing. And first it was for the high-level executive who absolutely needed the BlackBerry or whatever. But then it slowly became a thing for the common person. Uh, I remember the day that Verizon uh, came out with their family plan. And they said, hey, if your family comes, you can sign up and everyone in the family gets a cell phone. I was uh, a senior in high school when I got my first cell phone and it was about $10 worth of plastic uh, that flipped open and closed. Uh, not only that, but you had to pay per minute and per text message to use it. I remember the following year when I uh, moved out of my parents' house to go to college and my friends told me about this new site called Facebook. Uh, and it was classier than MySpace and you had to have a college email in order to register and get a page so it was super exclusive and I had, to, I had to be on there. I remember these milestones, uh, but by far the most significant year that I have lived through was the year 2007. In 2007, the human experience shifted as this new device called the iPhone was unleashed upon the world. And instantly, the world radically changed. In that same year, uh, Facebook changed its rules so that anyone with an email address could register and get a Facebook page. Uh, and a number of other things uh, happened in that same time frame. Twitter became a thing. Uh, the App Store became a thing all on or around 2007. And instantly, overnight, uh, the world changed. Gone were the days of dial-up internet and limited social media. All of a sudden, you had infinity in your pocket. Within a few short years, uh, iPhones saturated the market and two out of every three teenagers had an iPhone. And that's not even counting the other types of smartphones. That, that's absolute saturation. And that's just among teenagers. Fast forward a few more years, and we now have a kindergarten kids with iPhones, and everyone is on social media. Facebook, Instagram, Snapchat, Twitter, and of course, many others as well. Welcome to the digital age. The problem is that the iPhone itself and many of the forms of social media that you've loaded onto it are designed to be addictive. The people who design those devices and design those social media platforms 
have openly admitted that they designed them to capture your time and attention. And boy, did it work. If you were born in 1995 or later, then you were born into the digital age. Odds are you don't remember a time without internet and iPhones and social media. And though we are just over a decade into the digital age, the results are astounding. Our IQs are actually dropping, not rising, and our attention spans are dropping as well. One study found that your ability to problem solve and think critically actually drops just by having your phone in the same room even when it's turned off, okay? That means my phone is turned off, it's on the other side of the room on a shelf, and it's making me dumber. And that's when it's off. Some of us haven't turned our phones off in months or even years. Here are some quick stats. Among iPhone users, 88% of people said that they, when they have a spare moment, meaning like 10 seconds of free time or more, the first thing they do is to reach for their phone. For 90% of people, their phone is the first thing that they look at in the morning and the last thing that they look at before they close their eyes at night, which has profound implications for what happens to your mind as you sleep. The average iPhone user touches their phone 2,617 times a day. Not you, of course, just the other average iPhone users out there. This accounts for roughly 2.5 hours of every single day of your life, or double that if you're a millennial, over the course of 76 sessions every single day. Addiction is not an exaggeration. It may be an understatement. That's the reaction we should all be having right now, by the way. Now, let's pause for a moment and go back to the big picture. Your calling as a disciple, as a human being, is to be with Jesus, to become more like Jesus, to abide in him, to practice his presence, to turn your heart, your attention, your awareness toward him and allow that awareness and communion with God to grow over time, over months, over years, over a lifetime. But the biggest obstacle to you experiencing God in that way is a tiny slab of metal in your pocket that was designed to steal your time and to steal your attention, to capture your awareness. If we're being honest, when I describe practicing the presence of God and turning your attention and awareness toward him constantly in little moments throughout the day, many of us probably thought, wow, that sounds like a lot. 
I, I could never turn my attention and awareness towards something else that many times a day. To which I would lovingly respond, you already do. It's just your iPhone, not God. It's social media, not the Holy Spirit. If you turned your attention and awareness toward God as often as you reach for your iPhone, you would put Brother Lawrence and Frank Laubach to shame. Your awareness of God and your experience of God would grow exponentially and your character would be transformed in the process. The trouble is that you live in a world at war and one of the primary battles in the digital age is a war for your attention. If someone can capture your attention and your time, they sell that attention, they sell that time. If they can get your attention, they can get your money. And in the digital age, you are not the consumer, you are the product. Someone else is out to steal your time, your attention, your awareness, and then they turn around and they sell that time, they sell that attention, they sell that awareness on to the many advertisers of the world. That's why they designed these apps in the way that they did. The problem is that attention is the doorway to awareness. And and awareness becomes the very foundation of abiding. And, And your attention and your awareness are being stolen. Remember those CEOs who designed those attention-stealing apps? They are currently paying top dollar to send their kids to device-free schools. Meaning, I'll make billions off of your kids, but I know what this is doing to their brains, and I will not allow my own children to be exposed to it. Hmm. What's at stake in all of this? It's your experience of God and life itself. Your character, the things you worship, what you're shaped by, what you abide in, all of it is on the table. Life is no more than the sum of what you give your attention to. Because what you give your attention to is the person you become. For those who give their attention to Jesus, by practicing the presence of God, who cultivate a simple awareness of him throughout the day, well, they become more like Jesus and carry on his work in the world. 
But as we approach this practice, we have to recognize that our discipleship may rise and fall based on how you flounder or flourish in the digital age. Because as one scholar put it, we are distracting ourselves into spiritual oblivion. In the digital age, many of us are having this existential crisis surrounding God's absence. But might I gently suggest that God is not absent. We are. And it's time to come home. So where do we go from here? A few highly practical suggestions for practicing the presence of God in the digital age. I could put a hundred things on this list. These are the first that came to my mind, okay? Take it or leave it. Uh, The first, make your smartphone into a dumb phone, meaning you simplify and limit uh, what apps you have and what apps you use. A lot of people now are removing social media apps from their phone, only doing it on the computer during set times uh, during the week, uh, removing or limiting internet access on your phone, etc., etc. Number two, turn your phone on silent. Mine's been on silent for years, and I love it. It no longer dominates and interrupts every thought and every conversation. I I no longer have that sensation of, like, thinking my phone is vibrating in my pocket when really I don't even have my phone. Um, That that slowly went away over time. There's hope. Um, Number three, quit social media. There, I said it. Okay, Uh, I basically quit social media a few years ago and after a few weeks of like shaking and withdrawals uh, I have never wanted to go back again. Uh, In fact studies show that people who quit social media are something like 40% happier within three days. Not only does uh, social media distract you, in most cases, it's actually killing your joy and your contentment. More on that in an upcoming teaching. Uh, If you are unable to quit social media, for some of you, it's part of your jobs. Uh, For some of you, it's incredibly important in keeping touch with others, um, or some of you just don't want to. Um, You can, in the alternative, you can start uh, by setting limits on your screen time. I don't know what it is on an Android, but if you're on uh, an iPhone, there's literally a category under settings for screen time. And you can set limits on how long you're on anything on your phone. And your phone will kick you off uh, after you hit those limits. Um, You will be amazed how quickly you hit your limit. You can say, oh, I'll set a big limit first, an hour a day for social media, and it'll kick you off. And you'll be like, what was that? That wasn't an hour. you will be amazed. Every participant in every study done on digital distraction noted that they were shocked how much of their time and attention was actually going to these devices. They had no idea. And odds are that we don't either. You will be shocked if you start tracking your time. Uh, Next, buy an alarm clock. I recently went to Goodwill and bought one of those old alarm clocks from the 90s that just tells the time. Like, it's crazy. That's all, that's all it does. 
and what that means for us is no more phones in the bedroom. That means that the first thing I engage in in the morning and the last thing I do at night is, is reading scripture or engaging with the spirit. E- even if it's 30 seconds, even if it's two verses, whatever it is, let that be the first thing and the last thing in your day. It will change you. Um, but in either case, whether you buy an alarm clock or not, uh, you should be parenting your phone. Uh, and some of you have heard that phrase before. And those of you who are parents know what I'm talking about. <laughs> to parent your phone means you put your phone to bed before you go to bed. You get as much time after it's gone to bed as you can. And when you wake up in the morning, you have your quiet time before you wake your phone up again. Uh, Next, uh, practice silence, solitude, and digital Sabbath. Uh, More on those in the coming weeks. Uh, And finally, uh, turn your attention toward God. Just, Just try this week as an experiment. Try to turn your attention toward God before picking up your phone. You can still pick up your phone, but before you do, take a second, take three seconds, take five seconds, take a deep breath. God, you're here with me. I see you. I sense you. I'm in your presence. Now I'm going to pick up my phone. All of this, and we could go on and on. I'm out of time. All of this is about reclaiming your time and your attention. Focus it on God And soon the glory of God will be reflected in the very clouds above your head. And your quality of life, your joy, your peace, your experience of God will increase exponentially as you learn to do life with him. The alternative is you distract yourself into spiritual oblivion. You allow the powers that be to capture your time and attention. You allow your awareness to become enslaved to the latest app or your next social media hit, and abiding goes out the window. This, brothers and sisters, is a matter of discipleship. Because what you give your attention to is the person you become. Who has your attention? Who are you becoming? Let's pray.